So, Lord God, as we unpack a human dilemma this morning, I pray that you would allow our hearts to be tender and open to you. We're going to talk about conflict this week, Lord, and next week. And it's a tough area. It's hard. And, Lord, we've all fallen. We all don't do this right. Every one of us here don't do this right, including me. And I pray, God, that we can know what do you want to teach us this week and next on how to resolve conflict, how to keep relationships of unity functioning. So speak to us right now through your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you an opening question. If you were about to die and you knew you were going to die the next day and you were going to give a prayer request to God for the church on the last night of your life, what would you pray for? For the church. What would you think would be most important for the church to function best? Would you pray for good doctrine? Because, you know, heresy was a real problem in the early church. Purity. The Corinthian church struggled with that one. Boldness. Power. Influence. So all these choices that Jesus had, he prayed for unity. He prayed for relationships in the church on the last night. So let's read John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. And this is the high priestly prayer right before Jesus is going to be arrested and taken and crucified the next day. John 17, 20. My prayer is not for them alone. That's us, the church, and the disciples immediately. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When non-Christians are asked in surveys how they view Christians, one of the things near the top of the list is that Christians are always fighting each other. Would we disagree? Isn't there a lot of splits? There are more denominations than, than we can even count and even know about. So the world is not impressed by our lack of unity. And it's not that the world is any better at unity. It's just that unity reveals who God is so clearly to the world. They want to see what makes us tick, what makes us really have something to say. It's when they see how we can get along. Now, that doesn't mean, as you're going to see, that we have to agree on everything. It just means how we deal with our differences. So how do we build unity? I will start out, and I think if you want to say, well, what's the key? How do you really pull this off? The foundational principle of unity is one word. Humility. You have to start with a humble spirit. 
Didn't Jesus model that for us? It says in Philippians 2 that he came down. He's in heaven with all of this great close fellowship with God. He gives it all up to come down and become one of us and deal with us. And you know the story. It didn't go smoothly from a human perspective. It went splendidly from a God perspective. But there was a lot of disunity surrounding Jesus as he needed to change things. So he takes his position, surrenders it, doesn't come down on the earth and walk around going, I'm king, give me what I'm due. It's all about me, and it is all about him. That's the, that's the irony. We think it's all about us. It's really all about Jesus, and he had every right to say that, but he didn't. He just died for us. He just showed a humble spirit. And Philippians 2 talks a lot about have that same mind that's in Jesus Christ who didn't insist on his rights, because humility builds unity. But when the church has power struggles to see whose voice is going to be heard, then unity evaporates like water on a hot summer day. So if you want to pull out your outline from your bulletin, it's also got some more of that. One of the women's Bible study information sheets is in there for the joy study. But there's another outline. So number one, resolving unity... I mean, resolving conflict protects unity. If you want to protect unity, then we have to work through our differences. We have to solve conflicts in ways that the Bible teaches us. Unity is the responsibility of every one of us. And we have to work at it. We have to diligently try and work at this because it's hard. It's not easy, is it, to have complete unity? You've got to keep working at it Diligently, Our natural instincts want to protect ourselves. We want to look at who I am and what are my rights and if I don't take care of me, who will? But do you have a humble spirit like Jesus that puts others above yourself? Because that's way in contrast to say, if I don't look out for myself, who will? Do you consciously work and say, I'm going to protect unity and I'm going to work through this thing even though it's hard? even though it's a challenge. So resolving conflicts, that's our basic point to start with, protects unity, and we need humility to do that. Now let's look in Philippians chapter 2. This is a church conflict that actually gets talked about in the Bible. Philippians Chapter 4, verse 2 says, Paul says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Okay, we're going to look a little more at that verse in a few minutes. But first we have two women in conflict. And it's affecting the unity of the church or Paul wouldn't say anything. And you know what's really unique here is Paul names names. He, he mentions their names. Now, Yodia... Her name means pleasant fragrance. And syntyche comes from a compound Greek word with, you know, you know, together, walk together. A tachometer moves, right? It tells you how you're moving. Syntyche meant walking together. Pleasant fragrance and walking together couldn't get along. <laughs> We're not living up to the meanings of their names. But... When we do the same thing, two people trade words 
And there's great emotions involved and hurt feelings and anger. And that conflict, if it's left unresolved, will cause trouble. It'll harm both the persons and the people around them. You know, words are like arrows. You pull out an arrow and you shoot it. And once you release that arrow, you have no control over where it goes after that. And words are the same way. I don't know if you're a good archer, but, you know, if I even hit the target at all, it's a miracle. And words can be like arrows. If something happens, it deflects, the wind blows it, it goes astray, and you don't know where it's going to land. And the words can do the same thing. They can often go astray, and they can hurt. They can do harm. We can't take them back. So in their conflict, both of these women are contributing to the problem. And maybe they don't realize that. Because often, you know, we don't see our part in keeping a conflict going. We we compare ourselves and we go, you know what, I I really haven't done that much wrong, but so-and-so, look at all the stuff they did wrong. And we, we kind of measure and go, I'm less at fault or not at fault at all than they are. We compare our actions. We think we have received more wrong from them than they have received from us. And our human tendency is to justify our side of the conflict as more right than the other side, and we minimize our part. Our kids taught me a lot about this. I'm sure your kids did too, didn't they? You know what, they, they come and they go, you know, one of the, we had three boys, one of them would say, you know, look at my brother, he did this and this and this and this and this, and he tells me all the wrong his brother has done. He never mentions any part that he has played in the problem. And, and you know what's the hard part is he really doesn't even realize he's played a part in it. He doesn't even see that he's had a contribution. It's just, look what my brother did, because he wants to get us to take his side, right? Isn't that what we do, though? Even as adults, we find more sophisticated ways to do it. But we think, you know, take my side so I talk to my friend. And, and look, you know, they're more wrong than I am. So, you know, I shouldn't have to take responsibility for anything till they do. There are a little girl that she was called out by her parents and, and she had bit her brother's arm. And so the parents, he's looking, she goes, you know, uh, and, she say, and she justifies herself and she says, well, my teeth may have accidentally bumped his arm, but how am I supposed to keep track of what my teeth are doing anyway? Do we do that? Okay, I'm not saying, asking you if you bite people. But do we do that? Do we just kind of minimize our part and inflate the other person's part. See, having the same mind that Paul is telling them to do, it doesn't mean that we have to have agreement on every little thing in life or even in the church. It means we have to learn how to handle our differences. We need to have differences over things that matter and not little trivial trivial opinions. So, Agreeing on everything doesn't mean also just being nice on the outside, you know, being civil, but in the inside you're seething and boiling. It talks about the same mind talks starts in here in your in your heart, in 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 inside you, in your gut, we might say, and 
it's reflected in our behaviors because inside is right. Not just I manage to be nice on the outside, which is better than not being nice. I'll grant you that. But it starts with saying, being of the same mind as we look at the same thing, saying, you know what matters most? Unity. The cause of Jesus Christ. The name of God before the world. That they look at us and they see, they don't agree on everything, but they get along and they work through it and they sort, they sort through their problems instead of splitting and making a new denomination. So number two, take responsibility for your part in the conflict. Unity is going to come about when we resolve conflicts. It's going to protect unity. But take, first, take responsibility for your part. Even if it's not a big part, in your mind at least, take responsibility for what you have contributed Bill Hybels, a pastor and author, says this, The mark of community, true biblical unity, is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. Not the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. Conflict that goes underground, he says, poisons the soul and hurts everyone eventually. But we don't usually want to resolve, do we? It's, it, it's risky. It's risky to go talk to somebody. It may go get worse. It may not turn out like you want. So we're afraid. We think, well, I'll just ignore it and I'll hope it goes away. Anyone do that? I, I like it. And maybe there are a few things you do need to ignore, you know, like the color of the carpet and stuff that maybe in the end isn't a huge thing to be arguing about. So we ignore it and hope it goes away or often we're waiting for that other person to come to us because, I mean, after all, they're wrong and I'm right. So they should come. I get an amen on that over there somewhere. But conflict doesn't go away on its own. It goes underground and it festers. It festers in your heart and it festers in a church. And there can be a veneer of unity and we get along and it's a happy place, but underneath there's tensions and problems and unresolved conflicts that are just waiting to pop up. And you may not even know it's churning inside. You might know, well, there's some discomfort, but you don't attach it to this series of conflicts because you've kind of put it out of your mind. You've pushed it into your subconscious, but you're just kind of in turmoil. You're not at peace. You know what I mean? but you're not dealing with it. So it's going to come out. It might not come out directly. It might come out about something else. But unity doesn't grow well in an environment of pretending that everything is okay. So how do you handle conflict? Do you hope it goes away? Stuff it down? Blame the other person? Wait for them to take the next step or the first step? But let me ask you that today, will you commit to God starting today to take responsibility for your part no matter how small? For many years, I did divorce recovery workshops in, in a church that I was the pastor of family ministries. And, and most of the people that show up for divorce recovery are the ones who, they, because the first night they want to line up who's the dumper and who's the dumpies in, in the room. And, and inevitably, it, they, they find they both have pain, but the number one thing they have to do when they come in a big group and then go into small groups is they have to own their part of it, or they'll never grow past 
what happened. They'll never learn from it. A lot of them will rush into another relationship, and then that one doesn't work either. We have to take responsibility to heal. Well, on in Philippians 4, 3, Paul says, I ask you, my true companion, he's speaking to a church leader, I ask you to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause for the gospel. These are not peripheral people that are just grumpy, grumpy, don't really walk with Jesus that, that deeply. These are workers in the church who have been involved and very active and they've hit it, clash, and they can't get over it. And Paul says, okay, church leader or church person who has spiritual depth, go in and help resolve this situation because it's hurting these girls, these ladies, it's hurting the church. So we're locked in a conflict. It's hard to see the other side. We need that objective mediator to come and say, okay, let's talk, let's hear. Let's sort out what really matters, what's most important, and let's find a way to get through this. Galatians 6, we're going to look at a little bit next week, talks about how we as a church come and help restore people in a conflict. And sometimes you just need that objective third party to come in and mediate. But you need a a coach, a mediator, who isn't going to take sides. So I would be, as a pastor, there's been more than one church conflict I've in, and been in. And I remember one guy, I was at a seminar, a pastor said, you know, Christians are some of the meanest people I know. I don't disagree. It doesn't mean all Christians are like that, but some of them are difficult. And you get wounded. And so I would call my spiritual mentoring coach guy and, and tell him all this. And here, here's what I wanted to hear. Oh my gosh, those people are horrible. Those people shouldn't be doing that to you. That's so unfair. And I want to think, yeah, thank you for validating my feelings. But this guy was so annoying, he would not do that. He would ask me this question. What do you think God's trying to form inside of you through this experience? You know, really? You aren't going to take my side? But now I've come to understand that wisdom a lot more deeply. So when something I'm uncomfortable with is, okay, God, what do you have for me in this? What are you, how are you working to chip away some little pieces of my soul that really aren't so fully sold out to Jesus? What's God forming in you through conflict? What does he want to chip away at your heart? So our third principle is to seek a mediator who is spiritual. We're going to start by a commitment with humility to resolve conflicts to protect unity We're going to own our part of the problem, take responsibility. And third, if we're stuck, we need to find a mediator to build that bridge like you see in the picture. There were two nights, the story is told, traveling. They came to a bridge, and across that bridge was suspended a shield. And so they dialogued with each other, and in that dialogue, one said, well, yes, that shield is gold. And the other said, no, it's not, it's silver. And they started arguing, yeah, it's gold, no, it's silver. They got off their horses, they started fighting, they wounded each other and sliced at each other until they looked up at the shield and realized that it was gold on one side and silver on the other, and they were both right and both wrong, just like in our conflicts. You think your side's all gold and theirs is dirt on the other side, not even silver. 
But you'll find there are different perspectives, different ways of looking at things maybe you haven't thought of. And so what do you do? We can take steps. Joe Stoll gives us some suggestions. Number one, pray for God to reveal the truth that each side needs to understand. Okay, now don't say, okay, God, I pray that so-and-so would see the truth because I see it. Pray for yourself to see the truth. And you're hearing about a conflict, pray for both sides to hear the truth God wants them to hear. Number two, focus on fighting our real enemy, Satan, not each other. Now, if you don't believe Satan is stirring this kind of stuff up, read Ephesians 6, that our enemy is against the the powers of the air, the principalities of darkness. Number three, concentrate on vital issues rather than personal opinions. Many conflicts are based on preferences, how we want things to be, but there we have to, what, what really matters? What's vital? Number four, and this is when you hear about a conflict mostly, check the facts. There are two sides to most stories. Having been a, a pastoral counselor, it's amazing the number of people that will come to me and they'll say, do you know what this, this husband has done to this woman? And, and they only hear one side of it and they paint this guy up as horrible or vice versa. This is the worst woman you've ever met. And then you actually meet him and you find that both of them are decent people and we just need to work, work through things. Check the facts. I had a, a counseling uh, trainer at Talbot Seminary who said, there's no couple who don't deserve each other. They, thank you for that witness to Shanna. Because he said, in other words, it's, there's two sides, that there's a dynamic, there's a way we dance in a marriage and, and all this, that, you know, and, and you think, well, if you were married to so-and-so, then this, you would understand better of how, how come I act like I do. But guess what? You're both contributing in one way or another. And number five, learn acceptance and forgiveness. Learn acceptance and forgiveness. So which of those, or actually do you use those conflict strategies? And which of those is the hardest for you? If you were to look at that list of five, go, well, I do that one and that one, that one and that one. Oh, man, that, that number's a hard one. That's a hard one. Which one do you need to work on? So we're seeking a mediator. We're taking responsibility. And I want to touch on one more area. We have some more to talk about next week. But this is one other unity killer in a church. We're going to look at a string of Proverbs. First of all, Proverbs 18.8. Words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the innermost parts. You have a favorite dessert that you just like the first bite, and it's just like, oh, that's just. For a lot of people, that's, you know, hearing some negative thing or did you know kind of, it's like that for your spirit. You think it's a choice morsel. But if you're like me, you don't stop at one choice morsel. You want them all, and pretty soon you feel bad in your body because you ate too much sugar. Well, our soul does the same thing. Gossip is like too much sugar. It goes down into the innermost parts and it ruins your spiritual insulin level. 
Proverbs 26.20, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Proverbs 16.28, a troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. Proverbs 11.13, a gossip goes around telling secrets, but those who are trustworthy can keep a confidence. And finally, Proverbs 20.19, and this, there are a lot more gossip proverbs in out there so you can do a little word search and find a bunch of them. A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much, meaning telling everybody else's stories. Gossip shares information about the private lives of other people. The Hebrew word is related to a merchant who deals in information. A gossip deals in information. And you go, okay, but what if it's true? It's still information. I had a debate with an African guy. He said, well, it's only if it's not true because he loved to tell stories about people. But there's nothing in the scripture that says it has to be false. Or worst, maybe, is it's part true because there is some truth and it looks legitimate, but it's not all true. But the point is, is that it's destroying someone. It's harming someone and it's harming unity. And it doesn't need to be told. It's not yours to tell. So gossip spreads information and destroys relationships and unity. So number four, end gossip to protect unity. Someone wants to tell you a story, say, have you talked with that person about this? Well, until you talk to them and work it out, you don't need to talk to me. Now, it is okay if somebody says, I'm really struggling how to deal with this. Can you help me see what I need to work on? And and you give them advice to go and work on it, but realize there's two sides. But that's not normally what we're doing, is it? We're just hearing the story, passing it to somebody who passes it to somebody. And you know how that chain goes. So which choice will you make? Will you tell a friend your version of what happened so they can tell another friend? And then the people start choosing up sides in the conflict and divisions form, unity's harmed. The story takes on a life of its own. Once upon a time, there was a man who told something about his neighbor that was untrue. And word spread around the village as one person told another. And that neighbor was ruined. But soon the truth came out. So what could this man do now that he had destroyed his neighbor? So he went to the village pastor and asked him, you know, what should I do? This, this happened. It's untrue. It destroyed this poor man's life. And so the the pastor said, here's what I want you to do, the village pastor. Take a bag full of feathers and place one feather on the doorstep of each person who has heard the untrue story. And then tomorrow, go and pick up each feather and bring that bag of feathers back to me. So the man did what the pastor said. But when he went to pick up the feathers he found that the wind had blown most of them away. And so he goes back to the priest and said, well, I did what you said, but, but most of the feathers were gone. They had blown away and I couldn't get them back. And the pastor said, so it is with careless words. Once they're spoken, they can't be taken back. The damage is already done. So how do you respond when others tell you about a conflict? Do you let stories and rumors pull you in to take sides? 
Because you're not helping your friend. You need to do like my annoying mentor does and say, what's God trying to tell you? Do you pass along information to someone else and extend the conflict? Do you help contribute to an unsafe community where disunity is growing, not resolving? Or are you building unity that Jesus prayed for on his last night? Are you taking responsibility for your part in the conflict? Are you refusing to pass along gossip so you're working to protect unity? And when you're stuck in a conflict, are you willing to be humble enough to get a mediator to help? Someone spiritual instead of letting it fester. And most of all, are you asking God for a humble spirit that looks for what he's trying to form in you? I want to say the Lord's Prayer together because it captures some of this. Can we say this together? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Lord God, we confess we need help. We're humans. Jesus prayed this because it's one of our most vulnerable areas, if not our most vulnerable area, is our relationships. Around in that same discussion, Jesus says they will know you are Christians by your love for one another. May Chowila and Stevens County know that this church are truly followers of Jesus because we don't have a, a unity that is on the surface until something happens and a conflict emerges and then we fall apart. But may we know how to resolve conflicts because we're trying to work on our humble hearts. So show us where we have not been humble, where we have not cooperated with what you want to do in us as an individual believer as well as us as a church. Let your Holy Spirit come in. Root out those things that will be Satan's ammunition to shoot at us and be the great accuser. Help us to grow and truly have the love that will attract others into this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.